Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome to our first halakha of the new year. Happy New Year, everyone. So wonderful to be here with you. Um, I, of course, have to start off um, by calling attention to yesterday's truly stunning khutbah. Um, I mean, they're all amazing, um, but yesterday's was particularly powerful um, because of this really amazing analogy that the sheikh used. He kind of introduced it in the halakha two weeks ago, but really developed it yesterday in a way that I thought was so powerful and so moving um, and so apropos for our situation as Muslims, which is the idea that, uh, the title is Slave Ship Headed to a Penal Colony. Um, and it's this idea that, you know, when we as Muslims are all effectively heading in this direction, we're on a slave ship, we're in a horrible situation as if we are slaves on a ship, and we're headed to this destination where things are not going to get any better, they're just going to get worse. Um, but instead of actually taking a really hard, you know, look at our situation and doing what is necessary to, to actually change the situation, um, we get distracted or we distract ourselves with things that really don't matter. Like, well, are the men and women separated? Are the women covered? Are they properly attired? Um, do we have wood water for wudu? Um, you know, meanwhile, we're getting closer and closer to the penal colony on our slave ship. Um, it's a really, really powerful khutbah, and I, I really encourage people to watch it. Um, and it's, it's especially in light of all of the things happening in the world. You know, it continues to be a very dark world for Muslims, and especially when you take a look at what's happening in Israel with their newly um, elected and now, I guess, very active right-wing government um, and what they have in, in their minds for Palestinians, which is a really dark, dark ending. Um, it, is really, um, it is really painful, it is really hard um, not to want to distract yourself, but nothing is going to change unless we start by looking at what is actually happening in the world um, and doing what is necessary. Um, and you know, this, like at the start of the new year, um, it's always like, I think, incumbent on us, you know, at least personally, I know I, I wrote some reflections in my weekly email about, you know, just the feeling that comes with the start of every new year. And considering our situation and thinking about, you know, like, what can I personally do? What is one of my priorities for this coming year? I mean, it's great to always, obviously, at the end of the year, look back and see where you've come. But I think looking forward, it's really important to think about even, you know, what is the one difference that I personally can make and want to make um, and given, you know, where I am and the tools that I have before me. Um, and, you know, certainly we share a lot in terms of education here, um, and we talk a lot about what's actually happening in the world. And one of the things that I've always really wanted to talk about is, you know, what, well, what Sheikh talks about all the time is what's happening in Hajj and, like, why when the Saudis are really committing so much evil in the world, um, that we as Muslims continue to give them our money. And we give them our money when we go to Hajj. And I know this is a really controversial issue, um, but you know, when you think about the fact that after oil money, the Saudis actually, where they get most of their funding and their financial power comes from Hajj and Umrah. And you know, in, in an act of protest, we could actually maybe make an effect by refusing to go to Hajj and Umrah. And, refusing to give our money to a, you know an operation that we know funds the killing of innocents all around the world or you know being complicit in um, so many acts of evil against Muslims whether it's 
you know, being complicit in Uyghurs being in concentration camps in China or, um, you know, what's happening in Israel, you know, having all kinds of, you know, ties. Um, I mean, we could go on and on. There's a lot that Sheikh covers all the time. But, um, you know, recently I was, um, I had written some, uh, an email, um, a weekly email talking about how I personally was really sad about the idea that I would never, unless things change drastically, have the opportunity to go to, to Mecca. And, um, you know, shared some of the reasons why that was. And someone actually responded with a, a really, you know, beautiful email in a sense. Um, this person wrote to me about the experience that they had at Mecca and how beautiful it was. And it was a really detailed email about all the different things that this person experienced. You know, this person was a convert. Um, and was given the opportunity to go and chose to go and then proceeded to share with me a lot of the actual experiences um, that they had and then at the end of the email it said you know I feel like may I suggest that you not going to Hajj is just an act of self-punishment and you know I was really um, sort of touched by this in a sense that, you know, I, at first I was a, a little bit like, um, well, I don't know, it, you know, it brings up so many mixed emotions because on the one hand, you know, my email was about how I felt like as a convert, especially, um, my understanding of Islam is very much constructed because I don't have a family that has a history of Islam. You know, I don't come from an Arab family. Um, I don't have sort of a, uh, you know, a whole line of ancestry from which I can draw even cultural um, understandings of Islam and cultural meaning ethical, you know, Islamic things like, you know, manners and the beauty of this tradition that we, we are, you know, learning about. Um, so a lot of what I have to do to understand what Islam is, is really kind of piecemeal it together from my own experiences and how sad I was that part of that would never be the experience of going to Mecca or understanding all the things that come with that. And so, you know, I immediately responded to this email by saying, well, you know, it is true, you know, thank you, first of all, for sharing your personal experience, because it was absolutely lovely, and you've shared with me something that I will never experience. And part of it is because, you know, one, as I've said, I will not give my money knowing full well that I'm supporting the Saudis and the Hindutva organization and Israel and all the different people that, you know, are a part of that whole process now of controlling who goes in and out of, of Mecca. But secondarily, because of the work that Dr. Abul Fadl has done his entire life um, in speaking truth to power, calling out injustice, you know, standing on the right side of, you know, what we as, as ethical Muslims should care about, like literally if we tried to go to Saudi, we would be arrested and disappeared the, the second we stepped off the plane. And so for us to try to go to Mecca would be an act of suicide. Um, and so it's obviously not something that we can do, and it's something that is closed to us, you know. And so when you think about, well, why is that? Um, it's because evil is in power, and evil controls the holy sites. And, um, you know, as long as we as Muslims continue to support that evil, there's not going to be a change. And so, you know, it's, it's really ironic that when you are standing up for justice and standing up for what's right and standing up for God and speaking truth to power, all the things that the Quran calls you to do, that the one thing then is closed off to you is the ability to go to the most sacred site on the planet, you know, God's house. Um, and I, it's, there's, you know, I just, again, like Muslims, we are supposed to be standing up for justice. We are supposed to stand up, you know, and even if that means sacrificing at a personal level, the ability um, 
to experience something that personally is very, you know, enriching. Um, but when you look at it in aggregate and you look at the impact that Saudis have on Muslims around the world and how evil it is and how unjust it is, as long as we as Muslims continue to choose our own personal, you know, comfort and our own personal desire to experience that over the collective, nothing will change. And we've learned that sacrifice needs to happen for things to change. Um, I don't blame the person who wrote me. I, I mean, I, as I told her, I'm happy that you went, and I, I, you know, I'm very happy for you that you experienced this. And she didn't know, obviously, that this was a situation for us. But so part of what I really want to help people understand, maybe in this coming year, is that this is something that touches us deeply at, at home. I mean, this is the heart of the heart and soul of, of Muslims. Um, is who controls our holiest, two of our holiest sites, two of the three of the holiest sites. Um, and God, you know, as long as we stay complacent, God is not going to step in and help us. Um, so maybe by some chance, if we take a step like trying to boycott or put some financial pressure um, by refusing to go, maybe God will then extend a hand and help make change to eliminate the evil that is in power. Um, so, you know, it hurts me when I'm on social media and I see a lot of, you know, of very influential figures in our community organizing trips to Umrah, organizing trips to Hajj, organizing, you know, trips to Saudi um, or, or Dubai or whatever it is. And it's like, okay, no change yet, you know, status quo. And all the people that are like, I wish I could go with you and I can't wait to go with you on, if not this trip, another trip. Well, for me, that's like, okay, well, that's, that's the forward outlook for how long it's going to be before we change. Because when people who are scholars and people of influence have no problem spending money and taking groups of people to go to Hajj and Umrah, well, okay, we, that's the state of, of our affairs. And I hope that maybe some of the work we do to educate here can try and change the meter, change the outlook, and put justice and ethics and priorities first. So. Um, just wanted to share that with you. I hope that everyone finds that at least one cause that in Islam that you can move the meter on this year, and I pray that Allah will empower you to do that, even if it's just to educate yourself on what needs to be, you know, happening in the world and what you yourself can do to change, um, inshallah. And, and, and with that, I am just so delighted and excited to continue on this really powerful journey, um, Project Illumin, Surah Al-Ma'idah, Day 4, because this this tafsir uh, just time and time again is just you know becomes clear and clear to me that this is the way forward muslims need to reconnect with their quran and understand what it is saying to them and this is the only way i've seen that we can really understand um intuitively what god wants from us um so thank you sheikh for sharing this lifetime journey with us um and actually, let me just share a couple of things that I, that really drove my weekly email this week because Sheikh told me something that was really powerful, and that is when he was on this journey of discovery, um, he really, because he didn't intend to share any of this with anyone, it was just a really personal exploration. He felt complete freedom to, you know, pursue whatever, wherever his curiosity would take him. And there was no expectation that he would ever present it. So there was no you know, burden of expectation he had to meet and no fear of being judged. So that completely liberated him in, you know, in this exploration. And I believe that that's really what makes this tafsir special because what we're hearing here is what you don't find anywhere else and allows you 
to tap into something truly intuitive and truly primordial. Um, and, and so um, it's so special and we're so blessed. And so alhamdulillah, uh, may more people find it this year, inshallah. So thank you so much and I'm looking forward to another amazing evening. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for joining us. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wa Subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala al-Habib al-Mustafa Muhammad al-Nabi al-Ameen al-Musa al-Rahmatan lil-Alameen Khatamu al-Anbiya'i wa-Rusli ajma'in wa ala alihi al-Atari al-Mayameen wa ala ashabihi al-Mukhtarin wa ala man ittaba'ahu bi-Ihsanin ila yawm al-Din اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين We are approaching if you um if you concepts that are going to be challenging to communicate, not because the concepts are difficult or philosophically inaccessible or, or anything like that, but because um, they're, they're not in the mainstream, they're not, they're, we're not accustomed to them. And so we, we have to overcome the hurdle of lack of familiarity. Um, and what we're dealing with is that, again, positioning where we are. In Surah Al-Ma'idah, the last major revelation in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes us back to themes that were uh, addressed in Surah Al-Baqarah in the beginning of the Medinian period. So at the end of the Medinian period, we find Surah Al-Ma'idah focusing on the legacy of those who received the message before us. Jews and Christians. And there is there isn't an emphasis in Surah Al-Ma'idah on kuffar or mushrikeen. We don't have an emphasis on those who are on the the uh, what occupied Muslims during the entire Medina period, and that's their conflict with disbelievers. And, and there isn't an emphasis on the type of polytheism that, or shirk, the type of shirk or the type of polytheism uh, that is associated with idol worship but rather an emphasis on those who received the message before us. And conceptually, you'd think if the Quran 
is simply, if, if the Quran would have been simply addressing its historical context, The, the historical context of Muslims at that time, after Fath Mecca, after the, the conquering Mecca, there, the, the, it is a, the main challenge confronting Muslims are not Jews and Christians. It is in fact, continues to be whether Islam is going to spread in Arabia or not. That's from a, 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 a temporal perspective. So it is rather significant that Allah doesn't focus on idol worship versus belief, but Allah focuses on Surah Al-Ma'idah on those who received the message before us, Ahli Kitab, Christians and Jews, which means the author is not responding to the historically embedded text, but the text is looking forward to where Islam is going to be in the future, the, the author of the text knows very well that idol worship is going to become a thing of the past. And the challenge confronting Muslims will be dealing with a world where it's not idol worship that is the prevailing paradigm, but it is people of the book are the prevailing alternative paradigms. And what Allah has to tell us in Surah Al-Ma'idah about these, about these counter paradigms of the recipients of the book before us is astounding and extremely important. If you sit back and you think, so the last message, major surah of the Quran, gets us to think about the recipients of the at-tawheed, the, the monotheism before us. Well, that begs the obvious point that Allah is warning us now that you have inherited the message of Tawheed, the message of La ilaha illallah, that there is no God but one God. And the, the ball has shifted into your court. The warnings are critical and dire that we do not follow in the footsteps that made previous recipients of the message lose their path and lose their way. And in many ways, in so many ways, this is the only way that you can truly understand Surah Al-Ma'idah. 
is that Surah Al-Ma'idah, it's as if Allah is leaving us with a whole set of warnings about the all the ways that we can possibly go wrong having now received this covenant and received this trust and the most critical trust if if the author of of surah al-maida was a mere human the, the author would 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 not talk about christians and jews because according to the historical narratives uh Jews has stopped, has ceased to be an issue definitely since the expulsion of Banu Nadir and Banu Qurayza from Medina and definitely since the Battle of Khaybar and the astounding defeat of the last remnant of Jewish power in Arabia in Battle of Khaybar, Christians at this point are hardly in, in, the, in, in the picture other than on the margins, we, we know of the one major confrontation where Muslims get news that Byzantia is ready to move against them. And we, we, we've talked about the campaign that the Prophet ﷺ sends, sends to preempt that threat. But the reality of the Arabs is still the issue that there is no way that the human element would have predicted that idol worship 100 years from now or 200 years from now is going to disappear altogether in the near eastern area or in the in the, the, the area of the mediterranean um and the red sea and um and so on but clearly, the author of the Quran knew that. And the author of the Quran is, is aware of a trajectory that must have been um, simply just fascinating when you think about how the recipients of the Quran at the time were listening to the message of the Quran, having no idea what a century from now or two centuries from now or three centuries from now are going to look like. It is very significant, as we emphasized, that Allah reminds us It is very significant that Allah reminds us that the path that you've inherited, what this covenant is about, is about subul salam the pathways to achieving, the best way to interpret, to, to translate salam here is wholesomeness. Because salam is not just it is not just material peace. It is not sub, just submission. It is not just everything that we... 
we associate with Islam as a, as a Sharia and a Minhaj, as a pathway and a Sharia. But Subud Islam, the pathways, the in plural, of achieving wholesomeness, material peace, inner peace, legal equilibrium, material equilibrium, the very concept of justice, all of it is wrapped up in um, this most profound expression. And then it is again significant that when Allah introduces the discussion about the Israelites, the legacy of the past recipients of the message, Allah takes us back to if a, a, um, a primordial and or I mean in Islam there is no concept of the original sin as in Christianity but in as if you take just the literal meaning of original sin it's a sin of origins in the two brothers, one brother assaulting and killing another brother, and how human beings fail their covenant towards God. Now, it, it, it's it, murdering a brother is, it epitomizes the ways that you can fail, fail in the pathways of Salam. If you think of, if Allah is inviting to the pathways of Salam, well, the way human beings can really undermine these pathways is to engage in the type of sin, the type of failure that we witness when a brother turns against a brother and with all the set of all the set of uh, uh, psychological and philosophical failures in the murder uh, of Habil and Qabil, and then this, in turn introduces the discussion where Allah tells us about resolute criminal penalties for for the type of criminal behavior that spreads fear and terror whether it is Qat'at Tariq, highway robbery, and uh, um, Haraba, the, the crime of Haraba, or the crime of Sarika generally, again, it's not a coincidence that this is a sharp, even a, a rather dramatic contrast to the idea of Subul Salam, that 
you can't have Subul Islam if the people that exist in your society live in fear. And they live in fear because they don't feel secure. And they don't feel secure because they don't feel that their lives are secure or that their properties are secure or their households are secure. The absence of the sense of justice, the existence of terror, one of the main things that happens in despotic societies is that you live in terror. Why do you live in terror? You watch out what you say, you watch out how you behave, you are always scared that the wrong thought, the wrong words are going to end up having consequences that you cannot control. Now, think about that for a second, because we often read the text of the Quran about Fasad Fil Ard and about Sariqa, focusing on a positivistic legal outlook. It's it, the Quran is you know is it talking about the mechan the technicalities of highway robbery or the technicalities of theft, but there is a moral message here. The moral message is that Allah is inviting to Subhanahu Salam the pathways to peace and wholesomeness, and here is behavior engaged in that undermines this wholesomeness. And Allah is saying that a society that lives in the state of terror, state of insecurity, state of injustice, because you don't have recourse, is a serious problem for the monotheistic program, for the Quranic mission itself. And that is precisely why Allah intervenes in this discourse by reminding you that reminding you that this is about and jihad fi that this is about seeking the path of your Lord. And the true jihad, the true jihad in reaching out to your Lord. So what is the conceptual difficulty that I was talking about here? Is that we normally don't think this way, but the text of the Quran is clear that Allah is saying the pathway to your Lord, the jihad to your Lord, would lead to a state of achieving the state of wholesomeness, subul as-salam. If your society is plagued by 
insecurity and fear and terror and lack of justice, they know that you failed in al-wasila lillah, in the pathways to your Lord, and you failed in your jihad fi sabilillah. Go back, read and reread this section, especially verses 35, verse 30, 34, 35, and 36. The, the, this intervention between talking about Fasad Fal Ard and Sariqa. But there is something even more important here, and I will demonstrate it as we as we proceed uh, forward as we go on but I want to sort of jump ahead and introduce the idea because th- it will it will help us all the traditions all the traditions about what Surat al-Ma'idah will focus on when Surat al-Ma'idah keeps talking about that it is important that the Israelites follow their law and that the Christians follow their law and how they go to the Prophet to arbitrate between them and how, why should they do that when they have God's law revealed to them? All the reports about criminal punishments or criminal penalties and what we can learn from the precedent of those who received the message before us, particularly the Israelites. You will find that report after report after report focuses on something that we nearly always ignore. And that is the very concept of justice itself. We will see this as I as we unpack the, the ayat. But that report after report tells us that what happened with nations before us is that when the powerful would steal, they wouldn't punish the powerful. But when the weak would steal, they would punish the weak. Reports after report tell us that what happened with nations before us is that the powerful tribe would have a standard of justice, as we will see in the reports that I will talk about. A standard of justice that is different and privileged when compared to the standard of justice applied to a weak tribe. All the reports about why God talks about Sariqa and Fasad Fil Ard in relation to past nations 
it, when you, as we will see, all the reports focus on this element of that these people corrupted justice, and by corrupting justice, they breached the covenant. And the, by breaching the covenant, they were no longer walking in the path of the Lord, and they were no longer achieving subul salam And time and time again, the warning to Muslims is don't dare fall in this trap. So we are accustomed, unfortunately, partly because of the imperial experience, partly because instead of focusing on the ethical message, we focus on the technicalities of the law. But we are accustomed when we look at the ayat about fasad fil-ard and sariqa, we think that the point is the criminal penalty. The point is not the criminal penalty. The point is the principle of justice. It's like when the Prophet or you know, report attributed to the Prophet because there's some discussion about its authenticity when he says that if my daughter would steal, I would sever her hands. The idea is the path to your Lord cannot be pursued through the corruption of the principles of justice. Now, this is extremely important because you are receiving this final wasiyah, this final testament from Allah before Allah, you know, now you've received your instructions and your charges and you're on your own to go out and fulfill God's covenant on earth. And Allah warns you about the original sin, Habil and Qabil, and how the the very idea of a sacrifice that people would feel I'm entitled to a privileged position regardless of the merits of what I offer. And that this is a pitfall that human beings constantly fall, fall into, that sense of entitlement and sense of, well, demanding what is not due to you, exactly like these brothers. One brother was demanding what is not due to him, that God accept from him, and because he was unable to introspectively see the ways that he's corrupted justice, he ended up committing murder. And God tells us that, and this is why, if you murder one person, it's like you've murdered humanity i.e. if you corrupt the principles of justice, you've corrupted the principles of justice as to all of humanity. And then when Allah warns us about al-fasad fil-ard and al-sarqah and as the other verses, the rest of Surah Al-Ma'idah will talk about, repeatedly the theme that is constantly underscored is that those before you 
would try to play games with the principles of justice. They would try to privilege the privileged. And the very concept that I talked about last halakha, the unclean hands, that the, the, the issue is not whether you sever the hand of a thief or not. The issue is whether you have constructed a society where a severe, the most severe penalty would be still truly just because there are no true justification for the occurrence of that crime. So if, if, if your society is plagued by injustice, you don't have the clean hands to severely punish crimes. It, it is plagued by injustice because people know that there are multi-standards and that they are not getting their due. And so truly theft or terrorizing people becomes a, if you fulfill the principles of justice, then it's truly, crime becomes an act of malice. And then having these very severe punishments makes sense. You're addressing malice with what it deserves. But if your society is plagued with injustice, and that is the, the, the message from the discourse about Fasad Fil Ard or Had Sariqa, it, it, it is not to get you to focus. It, it's to under, it to get you to think about the mechanics and dynamics of justice and what would justify a truly uncompromising punishment. How can you apply the most severe punishment? I mean, think of... of of if the punishment will lead to a permanent handicap, whatever the punishment is, regardless of the nature of the punishment, then as a matter of justice, your legal process better make sure that you achieve near certitude before you apply a punishment that if wrongfully applied because of a defective legal process, you will carry the burden of that as a society, as a state, till the hereafter. Now, it gets you to think about what type of legal processes do before I can truly think, talk about punishing crimes in the most uncompromising and severe ways and the most irreversible ways? Because if I am worried about my accountability and I'm worried about justice, I don't want to take the risk of 
punishing in irreversibly and then discovering later on or in the hereafter that I punished an innocent person or my punishment exceeded the crime. Either way, to get you to think seriously about the scales of justice and the dynamics of justice and for it to come in Surah Al-Ma'idah, and as we will see in what Allah has to say yet in Surah Al-Ma'idah, all of that is not a coincidence. And it is a critical part of this final testament by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to Muslims and what Allah is drawing their attention to. Okay. Um, oh, one thing I, I forgot from last time, the, 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 um, there was an early, it, especially, uh, uh, in Imam Malik, especially in the, uh, in various statements attributed to the eponym of the Maliki school, um, a very, uh, there was a, very early on that part of what would be considered the crime of Hiraba is the crime of rape. Um, so in a, in a, it is reported that Imam Malik was asked by Al-Malik bin Marwan um, about a case. And he said, مَنْ أَخَافَ السَّبِيلُ وَاسْتَحَلَّ الْفَرْجِ الْحَرَامِ فَاسْلُبْهُ That whoever terrorizes people and commits sexual assault, that this person deserves uh, deserves salb, being, it's not the, the Christian it's not the Roman way of crucifixion, but it's basically a, a you 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 hang someone up on a pole um, until they die. So it's a it's a very severe punishment. Um, I just mentioned this because you for some reason you find later on this confusion as to how Islamic law dealt with the crime of rape. Although, um, I mean, that that position um, or that approach to the issue of rape existed from the very first uh, centuries of Islamic law. Anyway, okay. Okay. Now, let's go to uh, 
39 is a transition verse introducing the concept or transitioning to verse, uh, sorry, the, uh, 40 is a transition verse transitioning to 41. Okay, يا أيها الرسول لا يحزنك الذين يسارعون في الكفر من الذين قالوا آمنا بأفواههم ولم تؤمن قلوبهم ومن الذين هادوا سمعون للكذب سمعون لقوم آخرين لم يأتوك يحرفون الكلمة من بعض مواضعه يقولون إن أتيتم هذا فخذوه وإن لم تؤتوه فاحذروه ومن يريد الله فتنته فلن لم تمدك له من الله شيئا Okay, so Let's go to the translation first and then. So Allah started, it's addressing the Prophet. Do not be grieved by those who vie with one another in denying the truth. Such as those who say with their mouth we believe. The while their hearts do not believe. And such of the Jewish face as eagerly listen to any falsehood, eagerly listen to other people without having come to view for enlightenment. For enlightenment is in brackets by Muhammad Asad. They distort the meaning of the revealed word, taking them out of their context, saying to themselves, if such and such teaching is vouchsafed unto you, accept it. But if not vouchsafed unto you, be on your guard. Be not grieved by them, for if God wills anyone to be tempted to evil, thou canst in no way, no way prevail with God on their behalf. It is they whose hearts God is not willing to cleanse. There shall be ignominy in this world and awesome suffering in the life to come. Those who eagerly listen to any falsehood greedily swallowing all that is evil. Let's take the verse after it too because it's, it's, it's um, still... This is so 42. Hence, if they come to you for judgment, you may either judge between them or leave them alone. For if you leave them alone, they cannot harm you in any way. But if you judge, judge between them with equity. For God knows those who act equitably. Okay. So, here we have two things first a quick mention of the consistent problem even this late with the dissenting group those who took the shahada those who said that they converted to Islam but they continue to be um, continue to be a faction that speaks very unkindly about the Prophet and about the the Prophet and his followers and his disciples. Those who work within the rumor mills in Medina and in Mecca at this point. But 
here there's a an added dynamic and the reports are rather fascinating. The reports tell us that there was a faction of hypocrites who would constantly talk about the Prophet and his disciples, but refuse to attend the Prophet's council. They would refuse to come sit with the Prophet and his disciples. And the reports tell us that they did so, that the reason was taqabbura wa tamarruda, out of arrogance and defiance. When you look into this matter, you find that there was some of the Meccan aristocracy and some of the Medinian aristocracy, whether they were connected to Abdullah ibn Salul or not, it really doesn't matter because there were several of them and their followers who looked down not just I well the reports say that they looked down upon the fact that the Prophet kept counsel with people that they considered to be beneath them people from uh, tribes that were not very prestigious people who are not rich, uh, and they couldn't. You know, this this man, it, 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 whenever he has a meeting, all these unprivileged folks sit with him, right next to the privileged folks, as if it's not no big deal. Well, you know, we you you're not gonna drag us into this what they consider to be something beneath them. So this is. This is the those who claim to convert but continue to resist the ethos of the Prophet. But what is even more fascinating in my opinion are the all these reports that tell us that there were Jews that were very active in the rumor mills in perpetuating and spreading all types of nasty rumors about the Prophet and his disciples and they seem to be constantly active with the hypocrites so they, they bonded and that they would refuse again that they would refuse to attend the council or attend the meetings now why is this really interesting it's really interesting because this is quite late in the medina period 
And so the narrative about the simple expulsion of Jewish tribes, this, this is an indication that Jews still continue to be a presence in Medina even this late. And the expectation, what the reports tell us is, what is it that they're blamed for? They're blamed for refusing to come and sit with the Prophet So the expectation was what? Is that they come and sit with the Prophet Now it's that's so even that late in the Medina period, Jews are treated, and indeed you have also reports about Christians in the same way, as if they're expected to function as full members of society. To come, they they, they hear rumors, and in fact. Look, in 41, it says, سَمَّعُونَ لِكَذِبِ سَمَّعُونَ لِقَوْمٍ آخَرِينَ لَمْ يَأْتُوكَ So, what is the problem here? The problem is, Allah is saying that they hear rumors, they hear lies, and they believe these lies and spread these lies instead of coming to you to verify the truth. This is quite fascinating if you if you pause and you think about it because one it's it's telling them that it's not just you have the right, but you are actually expected to to have access and 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 act upon the access that you have in Muslim society. That it is very disappointing for the Prophet and Muslims, when you go around believing lies about Muslims and not verifying the truth. I mean, it's amazing. It's like Islamophobia. These were the Islamophobes of the past. They they believe stuff and they don't want to take the word of Muslims about it. They're not interested in believing what Muslims tell them is the truth, they are determined to believe the lies they want to believe. But remember, every ethos that is directed at non-Muslims, it goes back and comes to us. So we, in turn, cannot believe rumors and lies about non-Muslims, but we must go to the source and verify the truth from the source. Here we are getting in the, in the dynamics and mechanics of just discourses. So, 
when you try to look into what were these rumors that you are shocked at this is a bigger topic but you are shocked at the fact that some of what were said were were communicated as rumors are they, they, you get these reports that well you know they they were saying xyz but then some of it passed into the hadith later on these are the so-called Israelite traditions al israeliyat but it is a frame of mind you know did they really everything from you know what were the motives of uh, uh, the uh, or rumors about the the family the wives of the prophet or uh, you know slanderous scandalous stuff um, but the critical thing is that they are committed to the lies and they have no interest in actually dealing with Muslims directly and in good faith. The fact that this is occurring so late in the Medina period really invites us to reinvestigate the narratives about because it seems like Jewish tribes or Jewish populations continued to have a role in Medina till the very end. There have been a few historians that because of reports like this, they, they've questioned the traditional narratives about the expulsion of Banu Nadir and Banu Qurayza and so on. Um, the Jewish tribes, of course, Banu, uh, Banu Nadir and Banu Qurayza and the like. Um, but not nearly sufficient amount of work. I mean, so much more work needs to be done to, to even start reclaiming the, our historical narrative and start asking the tough questions. Some sources, because there are, you find some Islamic sources noticing that Surah Al-Ma'idah is talking about the Jewish presence that late as a, as an as a ongoing issue as a real historical issue try to resolve this by saying well you know these verses they were revealed actually at the beginning of the uh, medina period but then assigned to surah al-maidah later on 7 years later but there's no evidence of that. I mean, it's just simply reasoning by saying, well, you know, 
These verses were revealed at the time that Banu Khurayza and Banu Nadir were around in the third century, in third year Hijra, but then seven years later it was added to Surah Al-Ma'idah. That, that, there's absolutely no evidence to support that. Okay. So, but note here, again, we, we, we have to posit these things. When Allah says, it clearly, the, 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 the behavior, the ill-willed, um, the bad face behavior of those people who embraced rumors and lies and refused to act upon the invitation of the Prophet, come talk to me. It obviously hurt the Prophet enough that Allah tells the Prophet don't be sad. Don't be sad that this is the behavior of these people with you. And that in fact, they, the way their attitude towards you is so embedded in ill faith that they deal with you in an entirely opportunistic way. They hang back, see what what policies you embrace, what Quran is revealed, or what policies you embrace, what you end up saying, and they pick and choose from your narratives and your decisions. They pick and choose constantly to cast you in the worst light. So this is when you get where they say or in the interest of time just the, the English um, they say if such and such teaching is vouchsafed unto you accept it but if not vouchsafed unto you be on your guard that they are opportunistic and they pick and choose not to form a fair judgment and not to form a fair opinion but to constantly, they're committed to maligning you, committed to betraying you in the worst. And, and the reminder, and you'll see why this is really important, the reminder then that don't be sad because at a certain level, there is nothing that you can do about this. Now, we will see this is lead, leading up to a crescendo about the obligation of enjoining the good, because it will go from the discourse to the Prophet to telling us human beings, you see this, what's happening with the Prophet? Well, it's going to happen to you as well. But you cannot allow this to dissuade you from the path of your Lord. Because you will... You, all of this will add up and will get to a point where you want to call it quits, as we will see. But that's not an option. Again, skipping ahead a little bit. Okay. 
So samauna lil kadhib, akaluna lil suht. Now this is this is uh, 42. So Um, okay, so they listen to falsehood and lies. So they, they the description of Sabaun al Kazim that they are they are looking for negative things to that they hear and embrace and have no interest in verifying what the truth of things are. They don't let me talk. They don't go to you. They don't exactly like Islamophobes do. They want to believe what whatever they want to believe, and they have no interest in what the truth is uh, about anything. Okay. Akaluna Now this is this is a, a, a especially becomes later on. Allah points out that. It's not just that they they, they, they they are they have an enmity and a malice against you but their ethics are corrupt what is soht Muhammad Asad translates it as um boy. Where did it go? What is uh, what is this he translates soft as? Oh yeah, greed, yeah, okay, yeah, I found it. Greedily swallowing all that is evil. No, soft, soft is bribery, is rushwa. Is soft is all money that is unjustly and unfairly earned is soft. Now, when you make money from dishonorable or unethical ways, that's soft. Including, the, the often, rishwa is often given as the prime example of soft bribery. If what is, the reason, any sheikh that makes money from spreading or affirming or confirming lies of dictators and tyrants, the money that sheikh makes is soft. So when you find, and this is this is this has long roots in the Islamic tradition. Any especially religious figures, religious scholars, 
when their livelihood depends on affirming a ta'ut, what is wrong and unethical. That, what the money they make is described as suhd. And it's a, it's a horrible sin. It's not a small deal. So when Allah then is telling, telling Muslim, the Prophet and Muslims, understand that these people, their relation to, to truth and relation to ethics and goodness is itself corrupt. Because it's not just that they are committed to lies. There are financial interests behind their commitment to lies. You and your, 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 your whole path, your whole sunnah, your whole ethos threaten their corrupt way of living. And they want to preserve their, their corrupt ways of living. And so that is why that is why they believe these lies and perpetuate these lies because they want to continue making money through their corrupt ways. Okay. So then Allah says فَحْكُمْ بَيْنَهُمْ أَوَعْرِضْ عَنْهُمْ وَإِنْ تُعْرِضْ عَنْهُمْ فَلَا يَضُرُّكَ شَيْئًا وَإِنْ حَكَمْتَ فَحْكُمْ بَيْنَهُمْ بِالْقِسْطِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ الْمُقْسِطِينَ وَكَيْفَ يُحَكِّمُونَكَ وَعِنْدَهُمُ التَّوْرَاةِ فِيهَا حُكْمُ اللَّهِ ثُمَّ يَتَوَلَّوْنَ مِنْ بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ وَمَا أُولَئِكَ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِنَّ أَنْزَلْنَا التَّوْرَاةَ فِيهَا هُدًى وَنُورٌ يَحْكُمُ بِهَا النَّبِيُّونَ الَّذِينَ أَسْلَمُوا لِلَّذِينَ هَادُوا وَالرَّبَّانِيُّونَ وَالْأَحْبَارُ بِمَا اسْتُحْفِظُوا مِنْ كِتَابِ اللَّهِ وَكَانُوا عَلَيْهِ شُهَدَاءَ فَلَا تَخْشَوُا النَّاسَ وَاخْشَوْنِي وَلَا تَشْتَرُوا بِآيَاتِي ثَمَنًا قَلِيلًا وَمَن لَّمْ يَحْكُمْ بِمَا أَنزَلَ اللَّهُ فَأُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الْكَافِرُونَ Okay So this is takes us to 44 and again take a, a, a deep breath So Allah tells the Prophet so judge between them or don't judge between them. You you have a choice to either judge between them or not judge between them. But if you judge between them, it has to be injustice and inequity. And understand that if you refuse to judge between them, if you turn away, then Allah will protect you. Don't, don't worry about the consequences. Your commitment is to do what is right. And then Allah says, how is it that they possibly come to you to judge between them when in the Torah they have God's judgment? So what is this all about? Well, you get a set of reports that tell you, oh, this is about 
there is someone who committed adultery Jewish the Jewish elders went to the prophet and said what is the punishment for uh, uh, the, 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 they, they said to the prophet how should we punish this person who committed adultery the prophet said what what does it say in the Torah and they said what well, it says in the Torah to flog them and banish them and then they, they, the Prophet said, that's, you're lying, that's not what it says in the Torah. So they hid the verse about stoning in the Torah, and then the Prophet said, "There's in, in, in the Torah it says to stone them. Now, this report is implausible for a million different ways. If someone committed adultery among in the Jewish community, why would they go to the Prophet to punish or to ask them about what the punishment for committing adultery is? And the report says, or the 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 the, the, the bundle of reports say that they hid the stoning verse that they brought a copy of the Torah, but they put their hand. It's very theatrical, and you, you're not going to be able to hide the very. I mean, it's it's just. And then the reports insist that upon the prophet telling them that no, the punishment is stoning. That the prophet then ordered that the offenders be stoned. This relates to a whole controversy in Islamic law about stoning and whether stoning is part of Islamic law or not. And so this, these set of reports seem to have to do far more with that controversy than the actual occasion for revelation for these verses. There are many other problems with, with, with this report in terms of transmission, in terms of uh, who the individuals that were supposed to be involved in this incident. Uh, uh, some of them were already dead at the time by surat, that Surat al-Ma'idah is revealed. Um, and also the the identity or the ambiguity and obscurity that surrounds the identity of those who were supposed to have been involved in the offense, etc., etc. So I am extremely skeptical skeptical about the, the this whole set of traditions about that the it it the adultery and hiding the stoning punishment and now, there are another set of reports that tell us that among the tribes of uh, Banu Nadir and Banu Khuraiza, the two Jewish tribes, that 
the Jewish tribes had a law of Talian that was unfair and unequal. That because of the status of Banu Nadir, if someone committed either someone committed a tort, an intentional tort or non-intentional tort from Banu Nadir against Banu Quraiza, uh, it would be punished. But if Banu Quraiza commit a tort against Banu Nadir, it would not be punished. And that eventually Banu Nadir gets tired of the unequal treatment and the unfairness of this unequal treatment. And it goes and tries to change the law. And they, so Banu Nadir goes to Banu Quraiza and says, okay, we, 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 we can't have this any longer. This is really unfair. For a very long time, uh, it, it, you've held your wealth and power over us and imposed an unjust law against us. Um, and we want this changed. And Banu Khuraiza told Banu Nadir, no way, we're not changing it. So then they went to the Prophet and they said, okay, well, you refuse to change it. Well, there's a new leader around here or there's a leader now around here and we're going to go to the Prophet and we're going to complain to the Prophet and we're going to ask him to change it. And that whereupon they went to the Prophet and he did change it and said that there has to be this this unfair standard cannot stand. And that is why on 45, according to these reports, it says, that in fact, Allah is telling them, you know that in the Torah, I imposed a law of Talian of absolute equality. An eye for an eye, and a nose for a nose, etc., etc. And you violated that Tauratic law, and you've been violating for a long time. You didn't need to come to the Prophet to tell you that you're violating your law. There is yet another set of reports that say that no what was going on is that not the tribe of Banu Khuraiza and Banu Nadir, but that among the aristocratic families in Medina and in Mecca, both, including the Jewish aristocratic families and Arab aristocratic families, that there was a long-standing law that that someone, a nobleman, if they kill a destitute person, they cannot be put to death for killing a destitute. But if a destitute person killed a nobleman, they would be in turn put to death. 
In other words, absolute inequality in punishment according to your social standing. And part of that, that a man would not be put to death for killing a woman, but a woman be, would be put to death for killing a man. And that the Prophet abrogated all these practices, but that after the conquering of Mecca, the issue was rekindled because the aristocracy in Medina resisted the prophetic reforms. And then the aristocracy of Mecca resisted because they were they had just become Muslim. And that their resistance rekindled the resistance of the aristocracy in Medina. And that they were supported by the Jewish traditions of Jewish families, aristocratic Jewish families in Medina, who said, yes, this is our, we support you because a, a, a nobleman should never be uh, punished severely for killing a, a destitute person or someone who's a, a, com, a common person. Um, and and that the, the reason for these verses was the rekindling of the issue. And Allah comes and says, basically, shame on you. You know that this inequity in punishment is against your revealed book. And shame on you for supporting this inequity. And the emphasis here is to Muslims, again, about the dynamics and mechanics of justice. That what Allah is telling Muslims, this is such a critical issue. You cannot allow social pressures of people who are corrupt financially and ethically from distracting you from the principles of justice. Okay. Now, of course, the problem with the story of Banu Quraiza and Banu Nadim and the inequity is that Surah Al-Ma'idah is revealed very late. And the issue of the inequity between Banu Nadir and Banu Nadir was shortly after the Hijra. So there is a mismatch. Yes, Banu Quraiza uh, had for a long time imposed an inequitable standard of justice upon Banu Nadir, but this was addressed early on. But there is a way where it would all make sense. Yes, the inequity between Banu Nadir and Banu Khuraiza was was addressed early on. But clearly the evidence that there remained resistance among the elite, the Jewish elite, 
which would tell us that not all Jews, again, were expelled, and that the Jewish prisons continued till the very end, but that the resistance among the elite, those who were opposed to the message of the prophet, and those who were opposed were some of the Arab elite that pretended to convert, that as I described them as the dissenting group, and the Quran describes them as the munafiqun, the hypocrites, and some of the privileged Jewish elite that we know with plenty of evidence had been marred in, especially the, the, the ruling class, had been marred in corrupt practices for a very long time. And they were putting all types of obstacles to the reform, the, the, the revolutionary reform of the Prophet Muhammad in Mecca and Medina. And the instruments that they had for resisting that reform was rumors, slander, bad PR, and the, oh, there's another final bundle of reports. The bundle of reports says, but again, you, you, it can be made consistent with the uh, the the others' reports. Is that the elite comes to the Prophet Muhammad? and says, listen, we are willing to put up with all the different things that you have, the taxes you've imposed on us, the inheritance laws, the laws about treating slaves and servants and workers and all, all the things that we have uh, put up uh, that we, we don't like about you. All we want is one thing, and and that is basically that you accept our laws of unequal talion. That the thing that we can't get over is that you make the rich and the poor punished equally for the same crime. And so the part that we can't accept is that when a son of an honorable, from an honorable family or a noble family commits an infraction against a servant girl or a servant boy or commits an infraction against a commoner, that you punish them like you would punish a commoner. If you would accept This one, um, this 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 one exception. If you would accept that that you know this one proviso, we are willing to drop our opposition and follow you. And the Prophet refuses. There's a a a, a version of this report that what he basically. Um, uh, what he was asked to accept was that there were two tribes 
that came to him, again, because of the, the set of reports, that there were two tribes that came to him that in which a weak tribe that had been victimized, and I forgot the names of the, the tribes, but can, we can easily find them, had been victimized by a powerful tribe, came and complained, and the powerful tribe told the prophet, we are willing to convert to Islam and follow you as long as you rubber stamp our long-standing tradition of treating the weak tribe as unequal to us. And the Prophet again refused. Now, the totality of these reports, the thing that they consistently tell us, something in the collective Muslim memory. Yes, we have you know all these different reports about precisely what happened. Probably all of them happened at different points, at different times, not necessarily in the context of Surah Al-Ma'idah. But clearly what the issue that the collective Muslim mind remembered about Surah Al-Ma'idah is that, uh, is that the, the Prophet ﷺ confronted a nasty opposition group. And the reason for this opposition is that they didn't like his ethical program. And the part of the ethical program that they had particular problem with is the law of Talian in 45, that an eye to, for an eye, a nose for a nose, an ear for an ear. In other words, equality in justice. And yes, there are many different versions, but who knows? You know, one version could have happened in the fifth Hijri year, another version in the seventh Hijri year, another. Considering how this, how pervasive unequal justice was in Arabia, it is not surprising that this issue would come up again and again and again. And it is not surprising that there would be, and considering how quickly Arabia reverted back to unequal justice. Remember that shortly after the death of the Prophet and as with the development of Islamic law, you still you, you immediately got jurists that started saying oh, a slave and a free man can't be punished equally or a, a woman and a man can't be punished equally or a believer and non-believer can be punished equally. Clearly the ethos were being resisted and were struggling to gain acceptance and this is what you see in the in the text of Surah Al-Ma'idah. Is that what Allah is talking about, again, I remind you. Remember, all of this started with Habil and Qabil, Aben, uh, Cain and Abel. And Allah is reminding us how those before us went astray and what we should watch out for. And again, I remind you that this is not about the positive law, the positive penalty of cutting the hands of a thief or, or, or the punishment. It is about the mechanics of justice. The so the whole discussion about sariqa is about how 
the mechanics of justice work. And when you can punish severely, or when you cannot, you don't have grounds to punish severely, and that it is critical that you understand that the law of justice, equality in justice, was in the first, very first revelation of the Prophet And in fact, some of the best uh, reflections I've read on this are Muslim scholars like uh, Ibn Rushd who says that the law of Talian, what he means by this, the law of justice, is so old that you find its genesis in the very story of Canaan, Cain and Abel. So he's, he's basically saying, you know, Allah is telling us this is in, in nature before being in the revelation of the Torah and the revelation and the testament of Jesus and in the Quran of Muhammad that you cannot have Subul Islam unless you have the path for justice. And so, here, look. So then, those that came to the Prophet asking for the Prophet to arbitrate clearly that they wanted an arbitration that would not be fair and just. I mean, again, the details will probably, is this late, who were these Jews that came and asked for an arbitration? And Allah tells the Prophet, you know, you could arbitrate the matter justly, but if you arbitrate, you're bound by justice. Because Allah loves the just. Or you could simply tell them, you hardly need my arbitration. Because you know that the law of justice is in the text of the Torah itself. I, you don't need me to tell you you're bound by justice. And then Allah reminds them of this by saying, Allah says, we've sent the Torah in the authentic Torah and remnants of the corrupted Torah still is the light and justice. And And in fact, Allah reminds that, or reminds Muslims themselves that there are Rabbaniyun, there are, let's say, يَحْكُمُ بِهَا النَّبِيُّونَ الَّذِينَ أَسْلَمُوا لِلَّذِينَ هَادُوا وَالْرَبَّانِيُّونَ وَالْأَحْبَارِ بِمَا اسْتُحْفِظُوا مِنْ كِتَابِ اللَّهِ So this is 44. Um, the Torah wherein there was guidance and light. On its strengths did the prophets who had surrendered themselves unto God deliver judgment unto those who followed the Jewish faith. 
And so did the early men of God and the rabbis, inasmuch some of God's writ has been entrusted to their care. And they all bore witness to the truth. So, I mean, Muhammad Asad's translation. Well, okay. So, let's. So, Allah says, وَكَيْفَ يُحَكِّمُونَكَ وَعِنْدَهُمُ التَّوْرَةِ فِيهَا حُكْمُ اللَّهِ So, how could they, why is it that they come to you when they know that God's law, the, the law of justice is already in the Torah? Okay. And then Allah says, إِنَّ أَنْزَلْنَا التَّوْرَةِ فِيهَا هُدَى وَنُورِ That the Torah has guidance and light. This guidance and light given to the Prophets of the Torah, the, the 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 prophets that the Torah talks about, was transmitted to Jews, and godly rabbanim can be translated as godly priests, meaning. A rabbi is literally the a translation of a rabbani. A, a, a godly person in Hebrew it's rabbi, in Arabic it's rabbani. So the, the claim is that every rabbi is supposed to be a godly person. Wal-Ahbar Al-Hibr is a person of knowledge and truth. So by definition, Hebr is, now some people translate this as priests, but again, it is any scholar of the scriptures that is committed to knowledge and truth. Now, the point that I understand from this is that The guidance is in the Torah, so much, and that is precisely why you find, even to our to the day of in which the revelation is received, there are rabbis and godly human beings, whether ahbar or or rabbaniyun or uh, who un, who got the message and have lived godly lives, and that. Uh, speak the godly message, the message of justice, that they know is the truth, the fact that they have become a minority in your context, in your circumstance, the fact that people have ignored the godly because they fear other human beings is precisely the problem. So the Quran, again, even this late, and this is very critical for us Muslims to understand, as typical of the Quran, it never condemns Jews or Christians in a blanket way. It always gets you to be nuanced in your thinking. Most go astray, in the same way that most Muslims have gone astray, but they're 
always remains exceptions. And because the truth, the light, is indivisible and undeniable, it is not, while the Sha'ir, remember, that we start out in Surah Al-Ma'idah by Allah telling us the Sha'ir differ. Your rituals differs. But the truth is one. Okay. Uh, what time is it? Okay, let's take a three-minute break. Uh, three and a half. Three and a half minute break. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. This part of Surah Al-Ma'idah is so anchors the message that um, we've been discussing. So and and again I, I want to underscore how uh, how important it is that you have a text written in this historical period that doesn't make sweeping judgments and always qualifies to get you to think in a nuanced way in telling you that the Torah has light, ha has in, in core, in essence, God's message, and it has those godly human beings who are able to understand and embody God's message. It, I will even say that if you study the Quran and then you go back and you read the Old Testament and you read the New Testament, um, it becomes very, it's, it's actually strikes you, it's very obvious what parts of the Old Testament um, are affirmed by the Quran and what parts of the New Testament are affirmed by the Quran. And so it becomes very clear what parts of the Torah and what parts of the, of the Injil are um, it, it, part of this, this eternal message from God. There is so much in the Old Testament that you can tell has gotten you know, in, uh, caught up in these historical narratives that becomes a form of tribalism and uh, in Deuteronomy narratives that strike you as very much at odds with the core moral message of um, what you find in the Torah elsewhere. In fact, what, in my view, what is truly remarkable is the consistency. If you if you're able to see beyond the corruptions and the 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 various digressions, is the consistency of the core moral message that you find throughout 
Okay. So, notice here that when, when Allah turns to remind Muslims of what they must take from this narrative, Allah says, فَلَا تَخْشَوُ النَّاسِ وَخْشَوْنِي وَلَا تَشْتَرُوا بِآيَاتِ ثَمَنًا قَلِيلًا So what Allah wants you, to, what Allah underscores for you is do not fear human beings but fear me. That what leads to corruption is when you, when you, um, dilute the standards of justice because you are responding to other human beings rather than responding to God. To God. And whoever, so here, whoever rules, whoever applies other than what Allah has decreed, and this is a critical point because we have taken this verses like this to, to refer to positive legal commandments, to sort of the mechanics of law, um, whether the judgment in this particular situation is X or Y. But it is clear that al-hukm Allah, that what Allah is talking about here are these core principles of justice, like the law, the law of equality, like fairness in the in the dynamics of justice, in the process of justice itself, and then Allah continues after reminding us of the the the, the basis of the law of Talian, equality and justice. وَقَفَّيْنَا عَلَى أَثَارِهِمْ بِعِيسَى بْنِ مَرْيَمَ مُصَدِّقًا لِمَا بَيْنَ يَدَيْهِ مِنَ التَّوْرَاةِ وَأَتَيْنَاهُ الْإِنْجِيلِ فِيهِ هُدًى وَنُورٌ وَمُصَدِّقًا لِمَا بَيْنَ يَدَيْهِ مِنَ التَّوْرَاةِ وَهُدًى وَمَوْعِظَةً لِلْمُتَّقِينَ So 46, that then we sent Jesus to affirm the light and the core message of the Torah. Again, to affirm what you know to be the truth that you find in the Torah. وَلْيَحْكُمْ أَهْلُ الْإِنْجِيلِ بِمَا أَنْزَلَ اللَّهِ فِيهِ وَمَنْ لَمْ يَحْكُمْ بِمَا أَنْزَلَ اللَّهِ فَأُولَيْكُمْ الْفَاسِقُونَ And because the Torah is affirming the truth of justice, and because the Injil is affirming the Torah's affirmation of the truth of justice, because it is that core truthful message, when Allah tells us, have the people of the Bible, of the New Testament, ruled by what God has revealed in the New Testament. There is a tendency in the modern age to understand this as saying, that the Quran is endorsing a strict law of pluralism and relativity. That the Quran is saying, let Jews apply their own laws, let Christians apply their own laws. 
and that that is okay. But I don't think that that's the emphasis. Yes, the Quran does say something, as we will see in a second, about Shara'ah and the, the, about the particular diversities. But here, in 44, 45, 46, but 47, what Allah is saying is that the essential, essential message of the Torah is the same as the essential message of the Injil, the New Testament, which is consistent with the essential message of the Quran. The principles of justice are the same. And so when Allah says, let those the people of the Torah apply God's law, and let the people of the Injil apply God's law, and let the people of the Quran apply God's law. God's law is justice. That is why we are able, as Muslims, to read the narratives about the ways that people before us corrupted justice and sit in judgment over these narratives. The standards of justice never varied. When Allah says that there were rabbis who took suhd, who looked to material interests, and because they pocketed money, they privileged the privileged, and they adopted varying standards of justice, and Allah describes that, that as corruption, the reason that is comprehensible to us, the reason that is an affirmation of a moral standard that we can understand and identify with is because of the indivisibility of morality. So when Allah says, Allah is not talking about the technicalities of riba al-fadl and riba al-nasi'a. Allah is not talking about whether you do the adhan according to this madhab or that madhab. Allah is not talking about all the, the, the little outer appearances of the law. Allah is talking about the core way that we follow God's law and the way that we all as human beings can recognize deviating from God's law in the same way that if I tell you corrupting the earth is there a Muslim way of corrupting the earth and a Christian way of corrupting the earth and a Jewish way of corrupting the earth no there's only one way of corrupting the earth we all as human beings can relate to the idea of corrupting the earth that Allah tells us not to do because applying God's law is one and the same. So, and that is why then says, وَأَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكَ الْكِتَابَ بِالْحَقِّ مُصَدِّقًا لِمَا بَيْنَ يَدَيْهِ مِنَ الْكِتَابِ وَمُهَيْمِنًا عَلَيْهِ 
فاحكم بينهم بما أنزل الله ولا تتبع أهواءهم عما جاءك من الحق So up to this point Allah is saying and what we reveal to you is an affirmation of what we reveal to them but meaning it is the golden standard if you want to know what was the original revelation to them look at the Quran the Quran will tell you what the original message before corruption was in the Torah and the Injil and And so then, when, again, when you follow the law, follow the law that God has revealed, who are the them? Is it just Muslims? No. The context tells us that Allah is talking about the Prophet having to deal with diverse people people who are still holding to the Arab ethos people who are coming and claiming some level of Jewish exceptionalism people who are coming and claiming perhaps Christian exceptionalism although we don't have reports about that and Allah is saying no you know what justice is you know what the truth of justice is And that, well, you know what cost is, and that is what you have to follow. And do not let, when Allah says, do not let their ahwa, don't let their, the claims that arise out of their sense of self-interest corrupt your understanding of what justice is. Now, here, after saying that, then Allah gets us to, which is, again, typical Quranic style, the nuance. Then Allah introduces the nuance. فَاسْتَبَقُوا الْخَيْرَاتِ إِلَى اللَّهِ مَرْجِعُكُمْ جَمِيعًا فَيُنْبِئْكُمْ بِمَا كُنْتُمْ فِيهِ تَخْتَلِفُونَ And again, after saying that, وَأَنَحْكُمْ بَيْنَهُمْ بِمَا أَنْزَلَ اللَّهُ وَلَا تَتَّبَعْ أَهْوَاءَهُمْ وَاحْذَرْهُمْ أَنْ يَفْتِنُوكَ عَنْ بَعْضِ مَا أَنْزَلَ اللَّهُ إِلَيْكَ فَإِنْ تَوَلَّوْا فَعْلَمْ أَنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ أَنْ يُصِيبَهُمْ بَعْضِ ذُنُوبِهِمْ وَإِنَّ كَثِيرًا مِنَ النَّاسِ لَفَاسِقُونَ It's very clear. Then Allah comes and says, yes, I've given each of you a different sharia and minhaj. Sharia here and the minhaj here means a different way, a different narrative, a different particularity. There is the story of Moses that is different than the story of Jesus, that's different than the story of Muhammad. But, and if Allah did not want diversity in these particularities, Allah could have made you one, but Allah didn't make you one. 
So what is the solution? So what is the core? You are different. You have different histories. You have different stories. You have different narratives. You have different identities. You have different races. You have different interests. So what is what is the core here? So stabiqul khayrat. So vie with one another. Work together and separately and collectively to do what is good. So al-hukm bima anzalallah is doing what is good. So is and is, is corrupting the earth good? No. Al-fasad for art is not good. Is justice good? Yes, that is khairat. Is privileging the aristocracy good? No, that's not good. Is taghut good? No, that's not good. Is qist good? Yes, that's good. So the notion of khairat, don't get confused by thinking that the khairat is the particularities, the, the, the fact that what you might excel in the little mechanics of how, where do you put your hands in prayer and all the different schools of thought about where the hands should go in prayer or how you should do taslim at the end of prayer or how you should do takbir at the beginning of prayer or at the beginning of each rakah. That's not the khairat. That's not the ultimate good that you vie with one another to achieve. Is that hukmillah? Well, it depends. If this is your expertise and it is in addition to achieving justice, then it is consistent with hukmillah. But if it is a full distraction from the path of justice, then how can it be? If, if your relationship to God begins and ends with your expertise about all the different schools of thought, about how you do taslim or takbir, or how you put your hands in prayer, that, that, how could that be istibaqal khayrat? And then Allah comes back after alerting us that we are different and we have different histories and different cultures. Allah comes back and underscores Yes, there are differences, but the law of God, the law of ethics, the law of morality, the law of justice is one and the same. So after understand understanding plurality and diversity, don't get distracted in submitting to relativism, in thinking that, oh, well, you know, each person, you know, some people can, uh, oppre- oppression for them is okay, and other people, oppression for them is not okay. It doesn't work that way. This is ahwa. This is precisely how people follow their whims. 
and Allah underscores them وَحْذَرْهُمْ أَنْ يَفْتُنُوكَ that even be on absolute guard now here Allah is talking to the Prophet but through the Prophet to us Allah is telling us now in this final revelation because you're going to receive the covenant and Allah is going to see how you're going to do with the covenant Allah is telling us as you as you take over the charge as you handle the legacy you carry the weight there's hukumullah there's Allah's law and Allah's law is the same the law of justice the law of morality the law of goodness don't and be on guard that you allow yourself to be misled or distracted from what that law is and from the obligation to apply that law and if people turn away after why are they going to turn away are they going to turn away because you're telling them the right way to do it then no they're going to turn away because they find the burdens of justice to be against self-interest so Allah is saying but if they turn away understand that the fate that awaits them is that that what will fall them what will befall people are the consequences of the error of their ways so it's like saying you know they're turned away they're hurt they're only hurting themselves but what can you do you have an obligation persevering by God's law and because it's easy to, to follow rituals well I mean if you have in fact it could be a full distraction rituals could be simply distraction but why people resist people resist when you counsel what is against self-interest and what is against self-interest are the norms of morality and ethics when human beings are told that no you know just because someone is a ruler they're not entitled to live in a palace and have yachts and have airplanes and have all the luxury and spend that is what's hard what's hard is to to stand up for what you intuitively know in fact is God's law and that is why look at the way Allah concludes this passage astounding the Quran is astounding 
ومن أحسن من الله حكما لقوم يوقنون. Let's see how Muhammad Asad translates this. So comes to 50. It says, Do they desire to be ruled by the law of jahiliyyah, of, of the law of ignorance? But for people who have inner certainty, who could be better, a better lawgiver than God? Here, Jahiliyyah is brought in not in reference to the pre-Islamic Arabs, but in reference truly of a state of ignorance. It's like saying, you Jews who don't listen to the primordial message of the Torah, you are in in a state of Jahiliyyah. You Christians who don't listen to the primordial message of Jesus, you are in a state of jahiliyyah. You Muslims who don't listen to the primordial message of the Quran, you are in a state of jahiliyyah. So it's a choice. Do you want the path of jahiliyyah for all of you? The path of jahiliyyah is the path of the veil of ignorance where justice is not justice, fairness is not fairness, beauty is not beauty, khair is not khair, goodness is not goodness, where fasad becomes justified and philosophized and so on. وَمَنْ أَحْسَنُ مِنَ اللَّهِ حُكْمًا لِقَوْمٍ يُوْقِنُونَ Okay, now, if you anchor yourself in the primordial laws of God, if you truly understand the relationship between this God and the created, and that there is an ethical law, the source of the ethical law is this God, the justification for the ethical law is this God. The anchor for the ethical law is this God. And when you have that certainty, you are no longer confused about what God's law is or why God's law is. You will get confused if God's law to you is you know, the little mechanics of what I wear or what I, how I act or, but that might get confusing for you because you might not understand what's the point or is this a petty God or, you know, is this what life is about? But if you are anchored in the core message and the core ethos, your certitude is solid. The challenge, though, is what Allah tells us is to, in fact, be so committed that you answer to God and not to other human beings. Now, once we reach 50, 
Surat al-Ma'idah shifts gear to cover another very important message for trajectory, the trajectory of Islamic history. Remember that in Baqarah, Surah Al-Baqarah started by telling us that there are people in the past that received the message, they've lost their way, and you are now the recipients. Surah Al-Ma'idah returns to this theme warning us time and time again not to lose sight and not to follow in the footsteps of those who lost their way and the whole discourse about tawalli al-nasara wal-yahud allying oneself to Jews and Christians has to do with this. It's not as aqidat al-wala wal-bara often it's, it's, it's not to be different for the sake of being different. It is a difference with meaning i.e. don't follow in the footsteps that led to the moral failures that Allah wants you to avoid. What time is it? Okay, so let's, before we close, let's cover from 50 to 53. Because this is a, a, a shift in movement. Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu, la tattakhudu al-yahuda wa al-nasara awliya, ba'aduhum awliya abad. Okay. Wa man yatawallahum minkum, fa innahum minhum. Inna allaha la yahdi al-qawma al-zalimin. Um, okay. 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 ويقول الذين آمنوا أهؤلاء الذين أقسموا بالله جهد أيمانهم إنهم لمعكم حبطت أعمالهم فأصبحوا خاسرين okay. so, Yeah, you and O believers, do not take the Jews and Christians for your allies. They are but allies of one another. And whoever of you allies himself with them becomes verily one of them. Behold, God does not guide such evildoers. And yet thou canst see how those in whose hearts there is disease vie with one another for their goodwill. 
saying to themselves, We fear lest fortune turn against us. But God may well bring about fortune for believers or any other event of God's own devising, whereupon those waverers will be smitten with remorse for the thought which they had secretly harbored within themselves. While those who have attained to faith will say to one another, Are these the self-same people who swore by God with their most solemn oath that they were indeed with you? In vain are all their works, for now they are lost. Okay. First, before jumping into this, um, um, with... There is a report about do they desire of a hukm that do they desire the, the 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 judgment of the state of ignorance? Um, there is a report that says it's from Ibn Abbas that a a Jewish tribe went to the Prophet and again it's it, look at the similarity between this report and the and the, the set of reports that we've talked about that they went to the Prophet and said we will follow you we are willing to follow you as long as that as long as you always we have disputes with some arch enemies and as long as you side with us against our arch enemies blindly and the prophet refused now notice here that this in this report this is uh, narrated in the context of what is a state of ignorance and you know it is we have a tendency when we read history to think of it as alien but it's not that alien some people come to you and say you know what uh we are willing to we are willing to follow you but we want an alliance and in this alliance you are with us for better or for worse this is a more civilized way of saying what precisely these tribes wanted from the Prophet. What they wanted is, whether we're right or wrong, you are our ally. We count on you. Now, I tell you, a lot of alliances in our present world, in international law, are for better or for worse, are exactly what the Prophet rejected. Does NATO care whether you're just or unjust? Look, France took part and Britain took part in the invasion of Iraq. Although France and Britain and Australia and Canada all were on record that the invasion of Iraq is unjust and unlawful and against international law. But because of their alliance with the U.S., because they had a treaty, 
They said, we're bound. Sorry. We have to send troops. And the troops, the British troops in Iraq and Afghanistan, but Iraq and Afghanistan, the Australian troops, the Canadian troops, the French troops, have committed human rights atrocities. So it's not just that they, only, they took part in the unlawful invasions, but they actually committed atrocities against the civilian population in Afghanistan and Iraq. SubhanAllah, this is precisely the type of arrangement that our Prophet rejected. We, we tend to think of things as alien and foreign, but, but if we allow external influences, if we disabuse of ourselves of external influences, our primordial ethos comes back to us. And the Prophet said, no, I'm not willing to just blindly follow, to fight whoever you fight and make peace with whoever you make peace uh, without moral probity. And this is what's described as a state of jahiliyyah. Now, and this is right before Allah starts talking about those who ally themselves with Jews and Christians. Okay, so there are reports that says that that go back to Abdullah bin Abi Salul bin Abi Ibn Salul that he had alliances with both Christians and Jews and that when through the various developments where it became clear that Christians and Jews are hostile to Muslims Abdullah ibn Abi Salul and his followers refused to break their alliances and said well we we are worried that the fortunes will change. We are worried that you know we might need them in the future. So we want to keep our alliances lest Muslims are defeated and then we we you know we need these folks. And that um and that these are these verses are talking about the behavior of someone like Abdullah bin Abi Salul that you hedge your bets and you are wishy-washy about where you stand because you want to make sure that you're looking instead of principle you're looking to your self-interest and you're saying, you know, I, I want to take care of myself. I want to take care of what is of interest. So I'm not going to make a principled stand about anything. Of course, the issue is, yes, that could in part be true. But the issue was Abdullah ibn Abi Salul and his, and his alliances with various Jewish tribes. That's early Hijra period. And Surah Al-Ma'idah is late. 
Now, so what alliances is Surah Al-Ma'idah talking about in this context? And why right after all that we read about that Jews have the laws of God, Christians have the law of God, Muslims have the law of God, and it is really important that you don't lose sight of the law of God. Muslims at this point represented a revolution of principles. While it has become firmly anchored in the Jewish tradition, the whole ethos that Surah Al-Baqarah challenged, the whole ethos of the chosen people, and the whole ethos, not just of the chosen people, but of the privileged rabbinic class. Now, the rabbinic class, which the Karaites, by the way, rebelled against, but that's uh, uh, the, the Karaite Jews rebelled against. But the rabbinic class often dealt with the Torah at that time. Judaism, as you see it today, this is after Jews lived alongside Muslims for centuries. And after Musa bin Maimun, Maimonides, see, you know, took in Islamic culture and was the great reformer of Judaism. Study Judaism pre-Islam. Judaism pre-Islam had philosophized not just the theology of the chosen people, but the theology of the privileged rabbinic class that not were not deputized on behalf of God. They inherited God's law to they became the divine embodiment of God's law, meaning God gave them the divine writ and said, I'm hands off. You do with it as you please. If you're interested, read pre-Islamic Jewish theology. This, by the way, even it still survives to some extent that Whatever morality the rabbinic class legislates is moral. That is why a chosen people is moral. Because God didn't deputize them on God's behalf. God gave them the legacy of morality to do with it as they see fit. This 
if you read some Jewish philosophers, even in the modern age, they consider this part of um, the brilliance of the Jewish tradition. That in the Jewish tradition, God trusted Jews, humans, so much that God said, you know, I, I don't want to constrain you. I, I don't want to limit you. So um, I completely trust you. And here, you take it. You're the chosen people. You have this role of moral oversight. Um, you are doing God's work, but you get to legislate morality as you decide this is not representation. This is a delegated power where God has stepped out of the picture. Something similar in Christianity with the role of the church. There is no way for anyone to second guess what the church said was the divine will or what is acceptable to God, or in, in what both Judaism and Christianity had, when all is said and done, had put a human institution or human institutions in charge fully. So in reality, they had secularized morality. If you want to look at the, the Christian discussions about whether the slaughter of Jews and Muslims in the Crusades were lawful or not lawful, read what the Catholic Church, the way they debated the issue of morality and whether this loving, you know, Jesus and we're basically saying, well, it, 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 it's right because we say it's right. God has now that has entrusted us with the moral order. And this is what in, in a great deal the, the Reformation rebels against in Christianity. And what also Maimonides in his Reformation rebels against in Judaism. And Allah in saying that there are there are amongst you, and here clearly Allah was talking about the Arab aristocracy, or the Arab aristocracy of Mecca and the Arab aristocracy of Medina, who accept that logic of privilege and distinction. and find natural allies for their theology, for their system of morality in Jews and Christians. So much so that you circulate the same rumors together. You believe the same lies together. You even come to an agreement that you're not going to sit with Muslims. You're not even going to verify facts or rumors with the Prophet. You, are, you have found yourself natural allies. 
Now, you want to know something mind-blowing? The first Muslim empire, the Umayyad empire, the first dynasty, who were the natural allies that built the administrative structure of that empire? It was Jews and Christians. An empire that brought back the Meccan aristocracy to power. They found, this was early on in the first century of Islam, they found an enormous amount of resistance to their theology of privilege and aristocracy among Muslims. That's why the first century of Islam was full of rebellions. From the rebellion of the of Imam al-Hussein, radiallahu an, to a rebellion of Abdullah ibn Zubair, to constant challenges, the, the, the people they felt comfortable being allied to was the minority. And they found natural philosophical ideological allies with the idea that the text, whether it's the text of the Torah or the text, remember that the Catholic Church for centuries considered it a grave sin for a common person to read the Bible. And remember that the rabbinic class for centuries considered it a grave offense for someone to, for a commoner, to own the text of the Torah or to read the text of the Torah. You, you had to trust your rabbis to tell you what's in the Torah. You couldn't just, you know, you, you couldn't just walk into a Barnes and Noble and pick up a copy of, of, of the Torah. Uh, unheard of. It, the, the, the Torah was kept in a scroll and who got to have possession of the scroll was a very big deal. Islam people came as a revolution against all of that. Muslims early on were memorizing the Quran. Every average Joe and Mo was memorizing the Quran. Where's Joe? <laughs> he, he emailed me. I think he's coming back. He had to go to bed. So. Oh, okay. All right. I said Joe and Mo, and then I remember Joe. Where's Joe? Okay. We forgive him. Where was I? Oh, every, you know, not every, it was Islam, every average Joe and Mo would memorize the Quran. And even we know that various average people either had portions of the written Quran in different formats or Later on, in a few decades, they, they could even own a whole copy of the Quran. It was a complete moral revolution. And there is thematic consistency. The Quran is still talking about those people who go around circulating lies and slanders and rumors, and they find companionship in their opposition to the Muslim ethos and to the ethos of the Prophet ﷺ, and in challenging his laws and his moralities 
and saying, we are allied against you. And so then Allah says to the believers, those of you who do this are in rebellion, which is an obvious point, are in rebellion against the Prophet and his message. And you are not a part of the Muslim community. You are a part of them. Now, what is the relevance of this for our day and age? There are Christians and Jews that follow the primordial law of God. Like the Rabbaniyun al-Ahbar that Allah talks about. These are Christians and Jews that understand what justice and morality is about. And with these people, there's absolutely no problem in us being allied with them. Never against Muslim self-interest, but in finding in them immoral companionship and an immoral fellowship. But it's not just Christians. In our day and age, it's not just Christians and Jews. If you ally yourself with any system of morality or any representatives of the system of morality that is at odds with God's law, then you are from them, not from the party of God. That is why when I find Muslims today, for instance, that tell you, what's the problem with Trump? A man who made his ticket to power, Islamophobia, a man who said Muslims have no right in Palestine and are moving the embassy to Jerusalem, a man who is regularly, regularly, when you, you find some guy, for instance, that their, their, their philosophy of life embodies immoral things like Trump's attitude towards women. And if you've ever watched Trump in the old days and his beauty shows and the way he acted in boxing matches, beating on people, he would assault people and beat on them. And then you find Muslims that say, they have no problem with do you think the Quran was talking about whether your ally is technically Christian or Jewish? They're talking, the Quran was talking about whether you ally yourself with the long law, whether you ally yourself with those who represent a state of jahiliyyah, or you ally yourselves in common fellowship with those who represent God's law. The Quran, in short, is talking about morality, ethics, true God's law. Okay, let's stop here. So we have stopped at uh, 54.
Yeah, I'll say more about it. Oh, oh, oh. There is something I want to say about Al-Fatih, but I'll leave that to the next halakha, inshallah. 51. Okay, yeah. 51 and a bit. Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, that was incredible. That was like serious work. <laughs> the break, I was like, oh my God, that we covered so much and so like densely. Um, alhamdulillah, that was truly amazing just for even like a portion of Surah Al-Ma'idah and I was trying really hard to scribble down highlights. Um, so let me see if I can just go through this. Thank you so much, it was really amazing. Um, so from the beginning, I mean, you you know, you just point out that if you give us the, given the context of what Muslims knew at that time, they didn't know like what the next hundred years would bring. This is when, at the, when we started the halakha. And what really struck me right away is that when you think about where we are today, we honestly don't know where we're going to be a hundred years from now. And, and it's so important to recognize that what, what we do today matters. And so... You know, that just, again, underscores for me the importance of this learning um, and pointing out for us that Surah Al-Ma'idah gives us, um, you know, God gives us a warning list of traps that um, the previous generations of people fell in. I mean, you made a point to say, you know, God was really focused not on the historical events, but the messages that were revealed to the people that came before. Um, and so here's the list of, of warnings for you as you receive this last message um, that um, walking us through the sin of origins, as you said, we don't have an original sin, but the idea of murdering your brother and that that is really the ultimate failure and all of what, what that means and that we are pursuing a pathway pathways to Salam and that in this case, Salam is not just um, peace as you know we understand it but whole wholesomeness um and um having the um you know m material and spiritual equilibrium um and that the the idea that the pathway to your lord and the pathway to true jihad would lead to achieving the state of salam um, and if your society does not have that state of salam then that is a failure so um that is the, when you were saying breaking out of sort of what typically we think of, um, that so much of this is really about the concept of justice, recognizing that things like, you know, um, there can't be double standards for justice where there's a certain standard for pe the powerful and a certain standard for the weak, which we see here all the time in our, our day and age. Um, and kind of even building upon the idea of if you murder you know one soul it's like you murder humanity the idea of if you corrupt justice for one person you're corrupting justice for all of humanity um, and that you know as we're reading through some of these verses that we as Muslims are getting also held to um, justice in discourse um, so the example of when Jews and Christians refused um, to sit with the, the Prophet peace be upon him um, and chose to commit to lies um, over validating the truth by sitting and speaking with just with Muslims, um, that we actually have to do the same, that we have to, um, you know, also validate the truth. Um, so it's like messages are, all of this again is just messages for us and warnings for us. Um, and that we have to create a society with that expectation. 
Um, and the beauty of pointing out that, you know, at that time, there was an expectation that Jews and Christians would come and be part of society and part of engaging in this process and how that is something important for us today as well. Um, and how human beings really resisted the notion of unequal justice. And again, that's, you know, problem that we have today, that there's a certain um, set of rules for, for the elite and a different set of rules for everyone else. Um, and then again, underscoring the consistent message of nuance and how the Quran never condemns um, either Jews or Christians or anyone in a blanket way, but really, you know, teaches us about um, understanding that, you know, that there are nuances in how you should understand people. Um, and that ultimately um, there is where our rituals may differ, the truth is really one. And there's a core, essential, eternal message from God that even, as you said, if you go back and you study the Old Testament and the New Testament after studying the Quran, it becomes clear, you know, you'll recognize what those core messages are. Um, and it's not about the technicalities, but about the ultimate good. And that rituals um, are, are easy, they can often be a distraction, but it's um, what is actually harder is sticking to what is truly just, especially when it um, threatens your own self-interest, um, and that ultimately if you are anchored in this core message, then your certitude is solid, and then the challenge is for us to become so committed to that certitude that you answer to God only and not other human beings. Um, and with that certainty, certainty, you will not get confused over technicalities. And then lastly, it's not about alliances um, for your self-interest, but about justice, So, um, which is so relevant to everything we, we have see around us today. So there, this and this again is just <laughs> a small portion of everything we covered that was amazing. So, um, and this is, everything is, has been so powerful and meaningful. Thank you so much for um, sharing this incredible fruit from this one portion of one surah out of 114, alhamdulillah. Thank you so much. And um, I'm so excited to continue on this journey next week, inshallah. So thank you everybody for joining us. Um, I hope you have a wonderful week and look forward to seeing you next weekend, inshallah. So take care. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.